Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapper Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about the Cameroon-England Women's World Cup second round game. Now, watching it live, it was a surreal and shocking game. It had so many different features. It had the sort of hatchet job tackling and violence that you felt sort of reminded you of a 1970s England English Division 1 grudge match played on an absolutely sodden, wet, muddy pitch between two teams that hated each other and that there was just a huge amount of beef. And then you had elements of it that was almost like a seven-minute rock opera in terms of the... Uh, motion in terms of the the drama and I think it's very difficult to unpack all of that into a you know there was obviously an understandable sense of outrage you know at what took place and how this could and the impact that it would have on people's perceptions of you know the women's world cup on just it, it it's asked more questions than it answered. And now that there's a, a sort of a suitable gap, which now really, I think, allows us to sort of analyse it a little deeper. You know, it's, you know, it's just too easy. There's too easy a narrative just to, to say, well, the, the, you know, our girls you know, were you know, fantastic in dealing with this yes, unprecedented sort of game that you just wouldn't expect to see in you know 2019 and that the Cameroon team were you know embarrassing and had you know brought shame on the game I think it's a little deeper than that and there really is some questions that need to be asked in terms of where women's football can go in regards to African teams because up until that second round game you know Cameroon had came into uh, the World Cup with a difficult draw. New Zealand are, you know, a a well-established, you know, women's team. They, you know, they have been left behind a little bit in comparison, you know, with the overall rise in standards. So, obviously, if you look at, you know, the rise of the Italian women's team, the Dutch national team, the Spanish one, you can see that with that rise, you know, New Zealand aren't in a position really to compete at the same kind of level in terms of the, I suppose, football infrastructure, the you know, amount of players. You had Canada who are, you know, a lot stronger than New Zealand, you know, they're again another well-established team because the players, you know, you've got quite a large, you know, a large player pool. You've got the, you know, United States, which basically, uh, you know, gives opportunities for, you know, Canadian players, you know, to get scholarships to, you know, universities to play in the... NWSL, and then you had Holland, who are you know, really burst onto the scene in terms of you know qualifying for the World Cup, then winning the European Championships. It was a difficult group, and they weren't really expected to you know qualify out of it. 
even to finish third. You know, there was a sense that they, you know, that they're on their day that they were talented, but I don't think expectations were massively high in terms of the experts, you know, where they thought that Cameron could go. Now, watching the game against Canada, you could sort of, in some ways, you could map out a future in which African teams are, you know, could be devastating. I mean, there was, you know, skill, pace, you know, determination, power. You could see the potential, but underlying that was still the sense of, you know, rawness in terms of, you almost felt... And not to be disparaging, but you could just see that there was sort of a coaching deficit. You know, it was just all kind of potential. There was, a, you know, they were quite defensively deep. You know, a lot of it was sort of fast breaks, but it was still inspiring. Even though they lost, is that they pushed, you know, Canada all of the way. But you could see that, you know, to get to that next level. You know, you question whether there was the kind of infrastructure, the coaching setup that would allow them to do so. And really, what that then leads on to is that they then get a, a last-minute goal against New Zealand, which allows them to finish as they finish third. You know, they qualify for the second round, and this is the second. You know, they've been to two World Cups, and this was the second time that they got to. You know the latter stages of the competition, but as a, almost effectively a lucky loser, a best one of the best third place teams. Now the underlying problem is is that, and it's not so much a problem. It's just that FIFA now want to move. You know they want the next Women's World Cup to have thirty two teams, which is a fantastic, you know thing. It's you know showing that you know women's football. Has the you know the has the administrative political side of the sport wanting them to have you know a thirty two team tournament, which is great, but obviously the downside is is that then you move to a eight group, you know, top two qualify into the second round, which for you know I see African teams and to a lesser extent some of the, the Asian teams, that really, you, you are absolutely at the mercy of the draw for the group stages. Because you could end up in a situation where, you know, if you get the US and one of the big, you know, good European teams in your draw, you could literally almost be out of the tournament before your name's been drawn from the hat. If you then are the you know the fourth team in that group, you might end up in a situation where if let's say you're playing America in your first game and two three days later you're playing the good European team. Let's just say for for argument's sake, it's Spain. Is that you could be out of that World Cup within you know four days, you know less than a week. You're done. You're out of the tournament through really no fault of your own. Because obviously the infrastructure in the you know Spanish league, the infrastructure in the American league is just so much stronger, and really in the next four years, I don't see there being you know the kind of advances in terms of funding, in terms of you know scouting and coaching that is going to allow you know your you know a Cameroon 
to really be able to compete. I'm not advocating not going to 32 teams. It's just that there are going to be you know, unintended consequences. It means that the top 16 best teams will be you know, in the second round. And that's going to be great for the quality. But the emphasis is it's going to be mostly European teams. You know, a couple of the North American teams are expecting Canada. You're expecting US. You're then expecting maybe, you know, Brazil, Australia, Japan. And I don't see, you know, it's, there's a question mark over whether the African teams will be strong enough. You know, historically the best you know, women's team in Africa is Nigeria. And I think it would be, you know, being a tremendous achievement. But again, it's luck of the draw if Nigeria end up in, in a group of death. You know, there's you know a decent chance that you know in the next World Cup there won't be an African team in the second round, and the problem that when you go to that is that then suddenly your World Cup is just three games, and if it's yeah, and so there's little opportunities to really improve standards. Now the problem that then adds up is that really with the with women's football, you've got your World Cup, you then have your Continental Championship. Now the Euros, absolutely. The next one that's going to be held in England in 2021 is going to be a high-class tournament in terms of you're expecting, you know, you're going to have England, Norway, Holland, France, Spain, Italy, Germany, you know, You've got the Welsh, you've got the Scottish teams that are improving. You know, there's just, you know, there's possibility that, you know, Denmark can qualify. It's going to, you know, there's going to be no weak link in that tournament. Now, with the Copa America Femenina, Brazil are the dominant team, but Argentina are, you know, have the, the potential for Argentina to improve is absolutely huge. And I think their performances at the World Cup will spur more interest, more um, investment. And, you know, I don't see them... I could easily see them being in the top 30, possibly in the top 20, by the time in the world rankings, by the time of the next, you know, Women's World Cup. You know, Chile showed at the World Cup that they were, you know, that they had talent. They were able to, you know, push the Americans in the group stages. And the Asian tournament, where you've got the big beasts of you know, Japan and Australia, and to a lesser extent, you know, South Korea. So there is a genuine, you know, for those nations when they play, you know, at continental level, it is very competitive, and they're teams with different styles, different outlooks. In other words, you know, Japan and Australia play completely different brands of football. Both of them are stylish. You know, the Japanese is far more. You know, sort of a lot of patient build-up, a lot of passing, whereby you know Australia is a, a little bit more, I wouldn't say direct, but obviously they have pace, they have you know, you know, a lot of talent and an element of sort of rugged physicality to them, married up with you know good technique, which then really leads us on to the you know African Women's Championship. 
Now, I think the problem that you have is is that you obviously you've got Nigeria who are you know the dominant team. You know Cameroon a lot of the time you know finished runners up three or four times. You have you know South Africa, and you know, a handful of other you know sort of countries. But the the standard is, I would say, lower. And also from you know having watched the different teams in this World Cup, their styles are similar. I I don't think so. I think. So it's harder to imagine a situation in which you know, standards can improve enough at continental level, which will then allow you know, the African teams, when they get to the World Cup, to be in a position where they you know, can compete you know, in terms of playing style, whereby you can clearly see that, you know, for the emerging you know nations in women's football those nations have a lot more avenues if you let's say take uh, Scotland for example now the advantage Scotland have is that their domestic scene is massively improving you've had you know Glasgow City who have got through to the latter stage of the women's champions league at club level you've now got a situation where Rangers and Celtic are now you know entering women's football you know at a domestic level you then have the ability of the players to move to England you know which then you know which is a slightly higher standard domestically so you've got so many avenues for a Scottish player. You've then at international level, you've got you know the European Championships. There are so many ways for you know standards and infrastructure to improve, whereby Nigeria and Cameroon, those options are much less. In other terms, you know women's football at club level in Africa is haphazard. It's you know badly funded. There's you know a lack of medical coverage. You know, it's in some ways, you know, an, an afterthought. And if you look at, you know, there's been some fantastic stories, you know, when you know, Cameroon hosted the African Cup of, we have African Women's Championship, you know, they, got, they had record crowds, but it's piecemeal. It's not, a lot of the time, it's one step forward, two steps back. And I think a further factor is, what you have is you've got the World Cup, you have the Continental Championships, and you have the Olympics. Now, the Olympics, because of, you know, it's a small tournament, that the standards are very high. You know, when Cameroon qualified for the, you know, Olympics, they lost all three games at group stages. They scored one goal, conceded 11. Then the only other real options for you know emerging teams to improve is to play in the there, there are several tournaments so you have the she believes cup that's you know held in america you have the cyprus cup and these are where you know the, she believes is probably the the highest ranked one so in other words um it's you know invitation only so you've got america and you know england have been invited you've had france you've had germany and with the Cyprus Cup, that's a slightly larger tournament in terms of numbers of eight, nine, ten teams. And the problem is, is that the African teams effectively get shut out of these tournaments. So, in other words, 
Uh, I think Nigeria played in Cyprus a couple, a couple of times. Um, South Africa played a few times. And that's one of the places where, you know, you're playing different nations, different playing styles, you know, getting experience with tournament football. And the African teams don't get to play. It's like when, you know, when England played Cameroon, one of the um, sort of facts they gave, sort of stats they gave, was that um, they hadn't, the only other time England had ever played Cameroon at women's football had been a World Cup, I think, you know, 15, 16, 17 years ago. And that's the problem, is that if Cameroon aren't able to play in these tournaments, if they're not able to play friendlies against England or you know the top-level teams, well, how are you expecting them to really improve in any meaningful sense? You know, the options aren't you know, available. The avenues are that much harder. I mean, if we take, for example, the development of you know, men's football with the you know, African teams. Because you had the you know Italian 90 when you know, Cameroon you know, really showcased what African football could do. There's always been you know talented players coming out of Africa, Eusebio, and this was the first, you know, and the and the admirable battle for African teams to be, you know, taken seriously, to be given more opportunities to get to the World Cup. And the Cameroon team of Italian 90 really showed the, the potential. And for Cameroon, in terms of beating Colombia, in terms of beating Argentina, and being incredibly unlucky in losing to England in the quarterfinals with some contentious decisions, it then led to the sense that, you know, this was a new dawn and that, you know, the constant question of you know when can an African team you know win a World Cup, and you could see the avenues you know that modern football would offer in terms of getting African talent to to the level where at international level it wasn't just one offs it wasn't just you know a fantastic Cameroon team you know coming up with a couple of shocks that it was actually going to be something you know long lasting so the ability for you know of lower league you know european teams you know scouting africa giving those players the opportunities you know to play in europe to then go from you know belgium to france from france to italy spain england you, you had the you know, with you know changes in migration patterns, you had then a whole generation, you know, second generation, you know, sons of you know, immigrants who were now you know growing up in Europe, you know, becoming professional, and then deciding you know to play for the you know the land of their you know fathers and grandfathers. There were so many opportunities, and I think the problem that the women's game has is that I don't know if those opportunities are going to be as as available. I, if you look at it, a lot of women's domestic leagues, you know, at the upper end level. So in other words, you know, England, Italy, Spain, France, United States. There's an underlying emphasis that you know those leagues are there to help develop the national team. 
in other words, and you know, in terms of budgets, you know, there's not the same you know scouting network that would allow you to have you know. In other words, I I think it's a, maybe a generation, maybe even two generations away to the point where you will have you know Ajax or Manchester United or you know, Leon or Barcelona, Real Madrid having having women's academies in Africa to develop you know you know players who can then eventually move to Europe. That infrastructure isn't there. That scouting network isn't there. And whether, you know, second, third division, you know, or second tier European leagues, whether there's going to be the desire to scout out African talent. Because, you know, the transfer money isn't there. You know, so, yeah, there isn't the, you know, there isn't the financial incentive to find the next great African women's footballer that there is in terms of finding the next great, you know, African, you know, male player. And it's whether there is the, you know, I suppose the desire, whether there is the opportunity, you know, for, you know, African teams to, you know, find, you know, dual nationality players, you know, playing in European leagues. Whether there is the same amount of player depth. If you look at the, you know, the Cameroon team, yep, a lot of their players were playing abroad, mostly in Scandinavia and in the French League, but it wasn't the top end of the you know the French League. It wasn't Paris Saint-Germain, it wasn't Lyon. And there is a sense that you know the Scandinavian leagues aren't quite as strong as they were maybe 5, 10, 15 years ago, and that they've been surpassed by, you know, Spain, Italy, you know, the English League. And so it's hard for me really with all of the you know, changes and developments in women's football, it's hard for me to see that, to argue that the gap isn't going to increase between the rest of the world and the African teams, which really then sort of leads us on to the, the into the sort of narrative behind the, you know, England-Cameroon game. We've discussed that you know, the Cameroon team, in terms of the, the last-minute goal they scored against New Zealand, it was a fantastic story. They played some fantastic football to get to the second round. They had, you know, to an extent, overachieved. Now, the problem that that then leads to is that the England game became absolutely everything. This was a, a, an opportunity... Of uh, you're really a lifetime, the 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 knowledge that if you can beat England, one of the tournament favourites, one of the you know, top three or four teams in the world, and you can get to a World Cup quarter final, that would be the moment in which you know, women's football in Cameroon would enter the mainstream. And so, as you know, that would be a way of unlocking funding, fans, interest, you know, getting to. And it's it was also symbolic, is that you have the you know Cameroon team in Italia ninety, they get to the quarterfinals against England. They've already you know produced some massive shocks. They've changed people's perception of what African footballers could do, 
and that really opened its eyes to you know to, to European teams at club level to you know marketers to FIFA themselves and to football fans as a whole in terms of getting rid of some of the lazy condescending attitude that people had towards African teams and African players. And the way how they lost was so, I suppose, heartbreaking and to an extent controversial in that, you know, with seven minutes to go there, 2-1 up and England get a late penalty, which was contentious, another penalty in extra time. There was a sense, you know, of feeling hard done by it, that there wasn't the, you know, that the FIFA or that the, the referees or just the overall footballing hierarchy didn't want an African team and that the referee favoured, you know, England. And it's not so much a case of whether it was true or not. If they if you have that perception, it doesn't matter whether it was, you know, right or wrong. Personally having seen the footage, they're fairly weak penalties, but I've seen them given, I've seen them not given. And, you know, I can't make windows into men's heart. I, you'll never know one way or the other whether, you know, whether it was subconscious bias, whether it was bias, or whether it was just the ref just felt on the day that it was a penalty. And then once you then factor in the next time, you know, when you, you had the situation that when, that when Ghana got through to the quarterfinals of the World Cup and they were playing Uruguay, and they were just on the verge of, you know, qualifying. You know, it's the last seconds of the game. The ball is going in. Luis Suarez handballs it on the line. It's a red card. It's a penalty. If you bury the penalty, you know, finally an African team have broken through that glass ceiling. And they're in the semi-finals of a World Cup. On the day, anything can happen. You could have an African team in the final. But obviously, they, the penalty gets missed. It goes to extra time. They lose it, you know, on a penalty shootout in a heartbreaking manner. I mean, to be so close, to again feel that the footballing hierarchy has done you one over. That, you know, it's just blatant cheating. And that, again, you know, an African team were just on the verge of, you know, getting to the next level. And that there's some way that, that no matter what happens, there is some way... The, that the establishment, you know, the footballing hierarchy, the football establishment will somehow find a way to stop an African team, you know, getting to the next level. Personally, it was terrible what Luis Suarez did. I don't think it was... I don't think it was racism. I just think that he was so desperate to win, he handled it. But then... I suppose looking at it, I'm, I, I'm looking at it from an outside perspective, whereby I imagine the difficulty, you know, if you looking at it from, I guess, an African perspective, is that this is someone who has, you know, had issues with, you know, you know racism forays with what he said to Patrice Evra, you know, and the cheating element. It, I could understand how frustrating that would feel, to be in that position, to feel that you had been unfairly denied again. With all of the difficulties, with all of the disadvantages, the structural disadvantages that are in place. And so really coming into this game, there was something very much symbolic. And for those Cameroon players, it, it, 
you can't guarantee as a player because generally speaking the, the Cameroonian team, you know, they had you know a handful of players who this could potentially be their last World Cup. This was their last moment to shine. There's no guarantee, you know, the African Women's Championship, you know, they've had some crowds, but there's no guarantee that, you know, you might go there and it isn't going to be the crowds that I think you would see, let's say, at the European Championships, for example. You know, there's no guarantee you can qualify for the Olympics. So as a result, there was so much pressure, so much emotion going into that game. You know you're up against it. You know that the some of the England women's players are, you know, they train at Man City's training ground, which is palatial. It is, you know, up there with anywhere in the world. You know, th- there's been stories where a couple of the Man City players were saying they were doing sprints and then suddenly they'd see Pep Guardiola was watching one of the, the greatest coaches currently at the moment in world football and he's watching them train and he's speaking with their manager. He is someone who is there in the training ground who is, you know, even if he's not specifically helping, he's just there as a symbol. And when you then compare it with the kind of, with the experience that the women's players, you know, for Cameroon, at their domestic level, it's just night and day. So you know that the English team have the advantage in terms of their training facilities. You know, the manager that England have is someone who's known throughout world football, someone who's played for Manchester United, one of the biggest clubs in the world, who's won and played at the highest level. Now, the Cameroonian coach, yeah, he's done, you know, he has been a top-level coach domestically, but he's not someone that is well-known outside of, you know, Cameroonian football, naturally. And while you can credit the you know, Cameroonian FA for giving two million pounds, you know, in terms of funding to help, you know, the you know, with the you know preparations for the World Cup, that is still a drop in comparison with what the FA have spent on the England women's team in terms of, you know, England women have a you know a specific kit, and it felt on the day looking at the kit that the Cameroonian players it. Whether this is accurate or not, I don't know. I. It felt like they were wearing male kit, as if they were wearing the under-19s kit. It was, you know, the shorts were baggy, the socks looked big, the shirts looked big on them. Whereby, in comparison, if you looked at the women's team, it, it was all very, you know, tailored. It was something specific, you know, the kit is different from the men's team's kit. It's, you can see that that kind of attention to detail has been put into it. You know, some of the England team are playing with for Leon, the absolute dominant, the best club side in you know, women's football in the world. And as a result, so they're not going to, you know, in terms of you're not going to have the same level of fitness, you're not going to have the same level of you know, top level experience playing you know, in the Women's Champions League. You're not necessarily going to have you know you know your training facilities, the amount of friendlies you play, the sort of tournaments. So in England, England won the She Believes Cup just before, you know, the Women's World Cup. It's that kind of experience and you know the, the tactical skills of having played you know all of the best teams, you know, France, Germany, you know, Australia, the U.S. on a regular basis, and so as a result. You, the only way that 
I suppose Cameroon could win was on heart, emotion. It was, you know, effectively you're trying to call it like a cup tie. In other words, you're the underdogs. If you can make it as difficult as you humanly possibly can for the team who have, you know, better strength in depth, you know, more options tactically, that it's just a one-off game and you could win. And so obviously, you know, it did, you know, in terms of the first few minutes, you had the the elbow that was put onto Nikita Paris. And it was filthy. It was a, a straight red all day long. It was deliberate. It was nasty. But it was also, the element is, is that the defender knew that she wasn't going to be able to stop Nikita Paris. Is that, and once Nikita Paris was past her, you know, the element of, you can almost imagine how that would feel if you know that the person that you're coming up against has more pace, more power, you know, and can keep, you know, and can do this for longer than you can. And I'm not excusing the elbow, but then the problem is, is and this is where, you know, I had a, a great amount of sympathy for the ref. I don't believe, you know, in such a difficult game, what could she have done? If, if she had sent that defender off in the first five minutes, you've made a mountain even bigger. You know, it would be, you know, I suppose very, I can't imagine a situation where if you're playing in particularly hot weather, because, you know, at that time France was going for a heat wave, I don't see how you could compete for 85 minutes against a team that is ranked, you know, 30, 40 places above you under those conditions. Really, you'd be hoping that maybe your goalkeeper has a worldie and then, you know, you have a last-minute breakaway and score. It was unlikely. And then that's where it kind of fosters the sense of being cheated. Oh, well, if it had been 11 versus 11. So I can understand giving the yellow card, even if in you know, terms of justice it was the wrong decision. And it was clear that England were the better team. They were able to, you know, pass through the Cameroon team, they were creating chances. It was a case of when, not if, they were going to score. Okay, and they score. Now, there are times when the you know England was sloppy in possession, especially in defence. They did give up chances throughout that game. So I suppose the mindset, if you were the player, is is that it's you know forty minutes in, you're only one nil down. You could be have been out of the game already and out of the World Cup, and you're you know the. You know, there's no guarantees that you know you will qualify for the next World Cup. I expect them to qualify, but again, no guarantees. And there's no guarantee that you as a player will be selected or any number of different factors going in, whereby the women's team for you know, England, you've got the European Championships, you've got the Olympics if selected. You've got so many opportunities that aren't given to you know, or if they are available are that much harder that much more difficult to get from you know the you know the the obvious the standard of football in Cameroon being lower than in Europe in terms of training facilities you know coaching in terms of crowds any number of different factors and just the difficulties you know obviously you know a lot of families in Cameroon don't want their you know daughters playing women's football which is not so much the case in Europe where it's far more you know, accepted, you know, societally. And there's the sense that, you know, it's not as if England are going to help. England aren't going to play friendlies against Cameroon. It's always going to be, you know, hard yards, and it's always, no one's going to help you out. You know, it's always going to have that structural thing. The gap is increasing. 
So to then get to a stage where you then England score a second, it's offside, but then it gets pulled back from VAR, and suddenly instead of it being 1-0 at half-time where you can have the routing team talk and just say, go at them in the second half, anything can happen in 45 minutes, it's 2-0. The mountain gets that much harder. And because you know, FIFA didn't put the effort into having you know, the VAR decisions on the big screen, all you know is, is that you know, England scored, it was offside, but now you know, some you know, technology has now found out that actually everything was fine, it was actually a goal. The sense of frustration that would already be there, you're tired, you're struggling in this game already, and now it feels like you've just had another hammer blow. Okay, so you're going at half-time, you have the team talk and say, it's still 2-0, you still have a chance. Which, And then to then have a goal, to, to have scored, to have brought the game back, you know, to the Cameron were then back in the game. They've scored against one of the better teams in the tournament. It's game on. The, the sense of doubt in the England players, you know, do you stick or twist? Do you keep going forward or do you drop back a bit? And then once again... The referee then goes and says, "Actually, no. There was a, you know, an offside that. Look at it. When I was watching that game live, you didn't think that there was an offside anywhere there. It really was Jeweler's eyepiece. You know, two or three, you know, you know, sort of phases of play within that chance. You just didn't think it was offside. And then, of course, when it did come back, yep, it was offside." But you can understand that the frustration is that you know, it seems that everything is against you. And once again, it's an England team seemingly having all of the refereeing and technological advantages. And it's once again Cameroon at the getting the, the crap end of the deal. I have a great deal of sympathy in the sense that it's so such an uneven playing field and and I can only imagine the I suppose deep sense of frustration that those players must have had and just pure disappointment in that I think it was telling I was reading an article after the, the game that there was, you know, couple of the newspapers sort of mentioned the game and that one of the biggest selling English language papers in Cameroon just didn't mention the result at all. Is it that moment, that generational moment where if they had beaten England, if they got through to a World Cup quarterfinal and, and you know, really matched what the you know, men's team did in 94, you know, African football for the women, it... And to know that that opportunity is now gone. And that with the advances in the game, I see the gap only increasing. And that the bits and pieces and that the infrastructure you know, improvements in terms of the you know, European leagues, I don't think are going to grow so rapidly that it's going to help you know, African you know, women's players you know, get into the top level of of European domestic women's football in a way that will then allow them to then, when they play at international level, to have the quality and the experience in terms of training that will allow them to overcome the you know, infrastructure gap that you will have between the haves, which are 
the European nations, the US, and that, as I see it, I think that the African women's football is going to be the have-nots, and that that gap will only increase, and I, I think that's a personal tragedy, which I think goes to explain, you know, but not mitigate some of the, you know, anger and frustration that you saw, you know, in that game. And that it's really, whether these imbalances, you know, can be fixed. And I think the deeper question is, is that it's very easy to sit there um, on our moral high horse and to say how shocking it was that the players, the Cameroonian players acted that way. But I think the real question is, is whether there is something that we and FIFA and the you know, women's football as a whole can do to redress these structural imbalances. Thank you for listening.